Hello, everyone. It's uh, good to be up here again. I had the, the joy of staying at Sinkwazi with some friends this weekend. It's a pretty part of the world, this, and uh, the weather seemed to be playing its part. So, nice place to live. And, um, and normally I, I uh, get the chance to get in the water and spearfish, but I didn't for various reasons involving a six-month-old baby. Um, but, but my friends did, so they caught all the fish for me, which is a good and a bad thing. So I ate great fish, but I didn't get to catch it. So anyway, but it's like to be here. And uh, really what I want to do today is I, I want to ask this question, and maybe you've wondered this question, uh, what is the point of church? Because like we kind of take it for granted, right, that we come here, there's a place to come on a Sunday, uh, and maybe, maybe you don't take it for granted. Maybe for you it was like a big decision, should I, shouldn't I, okay, well, let me. But something brought you here, you know, maybe a family member, maybe uh, a question that you've got for yourself. But what happens a little bit, I think, is that once you're in church for a while, you stop asking that question so tangibly or so obviously, and you can't just assume that, well, this is kind of what we do. Uh, and I want to provoke that thing again and get us to ask the question, what is the point of church? And I think um, there's a bunch of different answers to this, which are normally defined by uh, various factors for people. Uh, number one, I think, is the season of the Christian life you're in. Uh, in the early days of the Christian life, so often church is this amazing place you get to go to. And I remember when I was first came to faith, it's like uh, Sunday was the best part of my week. I was like, I got to go to church, and there was worship, and there was preaching, and I felt like the guy was speaking to me, and it was awesome. Um, and then you move on a little bit, and sometimes your, your answer to the question, what's the point of church, is defined by previous experiences. So maybe you've been in a church where things haven't gone so well, so it's been bad, and you're like, well, the point of church is to not be like that. Like, that's what we're avoiding, okay? As long as we're not like that, then I'm okay. Um, anyone know what I'm talking about? Don't put up your hands. Um, or, or maybe it's uh, like you've had it really good. And this happens to a lot of people. They were in a church normally when they first became, came to faith, and they're like, when I was in that church, it was amazing. And it was awesome. And like, if church could just be like that again, that would be great because that's what I'm looking for. Uh, and so often you never find that thing again because no church, two churches are the same. And also you're not the same. There's a different season of your life that you're in. Or sometimes we think church should be defined by what we're passionate about. So I love teaching uh, the Bible. So I, it's very easy for me to say the point of church is to have good, solid teaching. Because right? that's what I'm passionate about. Maybe you love worship and then you go, well, the point of church is to have wonderful times of worship. Or maybe you're into the prophetic thing, and if you don't know what the prophetic thing is, don't worry about it, but if you do, um, you're into the prophetic thing. Well, the point of church is to have that kind of experience of God, where God's speaking and shaping. Or maybe you're into social justice, and that's your thing. Like, well, the point of church is to do social justice or to be able to uh, reach the, the poor and make a difference in society. And so what happens is we tend to define the point of church, what we want, and our gifting and our passion. And we have to ask, is that really how we get to define this? And as I said, I remember when I first came to faith, and it's like I loved coming to church. Sunday was the best part of my week. I used to come, and like, ah, Jesus is there. And I, I remember my progression towards what I thought was the pinnacle of church involvement. Let me describe the pinnacle of church involvement for you. First thing is you've made some friends. Because when you come to church, a new church for the first time, it's like you, you've got the sense, this feeling that everyone knows each other, 
and I don't know anyone. And so it's like, I'm um, a little bit on the outside, and you, you, like, do I stand by the coffee machine and hope I get to have a conversation, or do I just, because once you've committed to that cup of coffee, you know you've got at least 10 minutes before you get to leave. And it's, you know what I'm saying? If it's awkward, then you're like, ah, I've got to drink this, and then you end up drinking too fast, and you burn your throat so you can get in the car and leave. Uh, so I'd made some friends. The second thing has happened is I joined some serving teams, because having a job in church is quite important, you know, because if I've got a job, then I've got something to do, then obviously I fit here. Okay, uh, and then you've attended some courses, and this is where you've developed some lingo. Okay, so we've got the Freedom in Christ course, known as FRC. So if you just drop that in comments, ah, oh, did FRC? It was amazing. The new guy is coming. He's like, hey, I don't know, what's FRC? That's weird. But because you're now in the inside circle, you're like, ah, oh, I can drop FRC in a conversation. People know what you're saying. The, the, the next phase is that I knew. All the words. Do, do you want me to use the other mic? No, it's a speaker. It's a speaker. Uh, I knew all the words to all the songs. Because this is like when you know you're really spiritual, is when you can sing a whole song without opening your eyes. You're like, yo, that's like the pinnacle of my worship. Other people, are, they need the AV, but not me. I'm in the zone here, you know. And, um, and that was like a, quite a cool thing. And we used to, when I first went to, to church, it's like we, they used to say, could you everyone turn to? And then you had to turn there in your Bible, because they didn't have the words on the screen, um, which is really awkward if you don't know your Bible, because they go like, everyone turn to the book of Malachi, and then you're like, ah, and I'll be like, <laughs> Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, checks. And then you see that one guy, they're in the index, and they're looking, they're like, Shh. you're like, ah, you don't know what's going on here, eh? you don't know. And it's, uh, and like then you'd help the person next to you. You felt really spiritual in that moment. It's like, I know my Bible so well, I got there. You know, it's like I'm the guy on the airplane where the mask falls down, put my one on first, help you, saving lives here, you know? And, uh, and so like that was like for me, like, oh, I really had a place that I, I belonged. And, and then along the way, I started asking questions. Actually, what happened is I left Durban, I went overseas, and so now I wasn't working for a church, I was working for an organization and going to church, which is, I suppose, the experience a lot of people have. And then I started to think, well, I've got friends, so why do I need church for that? Or um, I serve in a team once a month, but actually serving is not just about being a part of a team. I can serve my friends and my community whenever. I don't need a vehicle to do that. Serving is a part of our lives. And then you're like, well, I can attend some courses, but actually I can just go find the books. Because even Freedom and Christ is based on two books written by Neil Anderson. So if I just go to the books, I don't have to go hang out with all those people every week, you know? And then like, do you, like I, well, I know that it's great to be in times of worship, but I can actually do worship at home. And I don't know, like that moment when I realized I can put the worship song on at home and the Holy Spirit was with me there too. I was like, this is awesome. And then and then actually I can listen to better sermons online. I mean, even as a preacher in this church, there's better preachers than you can find online. <laughs> I mean, that's the amazing thing about the world in which we live. You can literally go listen to the best preachers in the world anytime you want. And so I started asking this question, why do I need church? Is it just because I get to do those things with other believers, which is important? But is that it? Is it simply a, a place for Christians to go deeper and deeper with God? 
I mean, it's a really beautiful picture. And, and I know when you're part of this, a, a group of people that are collectively you pursuing God and what He wants for your life, it's beautiful. It's a noble pursuit. And you get to be a part of an amazing community where there's intimacy with God. And you see other people's prayer life or other people's intimacy. And it, it draws you in because it gives you a picture of what to aim at. And, and it's amazing because there's such a, a sense of love in that space. And, and there's a helps you to accept who you are because other people are ministering God's love to you and you get to mature in your gift in that space and it can become quite a safe space to express gifts. And, but is that the point? Just to become a more and more, in a sense, mature group of believers? Because at the other time, sometimes church can get weird. We all know this. I've got some two proofs for you that church can get weird. Number one is this picture over here. Maybe you can't see it so well, but it says the Christian life is exciting, a self-study Bible course, and you're right, they're looking at a big chunk of meat. (laughs) So uh, literally there was a marketing team, (laughs) like the way to reach Christians and sell books, this is it. Husband and wife, couples that prayed together, stayed together. They had their own phrase there. And they're looking at a big chunk of meat. (laughs) And the reason they're doing that is because there's a phrase somewhere in the Bible that we must move on to solid food, onto meat and not just milk. And they basically speaking, if they had the cotton of milk behind them, like it would be clearer, you know. But that's where they're going. And the whole point is you've got to have quite a bit of Christian experience for that to make sense. You know what I'm saying? But there's a, literally a marketing team that that's how we're going to sell this book. Because, like, that's weird, right? Like, other people looking in at the church going, that's weird. There's an, another example, which is actually, I think, not as weird, but some, it is weird, but it's beautiful, is uh, this picture. That, that's called Masaba Monastery. And uh, it's one of the oldest continually inhabited monasteries in the world. First people lived there in caves in 483 AD. So like, that's quite a bit. It's quite long. And, um, and I've actually been here. It's just in what's called the West Bank. So I lived in Israel for a while, and you go through a, a checkpoint moving into the West Bank, then Bethlehem, and then you had to argue with a taxi driver for half an hour to get a fair price, and then you're coming through these hills, and you come into the space, and you, and you can see the road here. I actually like this. And you could park there. And, um, and it was nice. It was handy that I was a bloke, because they don't let ladies in, because otherwise the monks that are there would just, like, go wild. You know, so... <laughs> 1,500 years of no woman, you can imagine. But anyway, um, and so then I, you, you come in here and you walk down all these steps and you get to go and, and look around the space. And, and here's a whole community that's going, the only reason we exist is to pursue the presence of God and to grow in a sense of worship and adoration of who He is, which actually isn't so bad. <laughs> it's actually quite amazing. For 1,500 years, that's what this community has been about. We want to know God. We want to pursue Him. We want to pursue His presence. And, uh, and you look at that, and you go, that's awesome. But is that, like, are we just going to aim at, like, a slightly less ambition, ambitious version of that, you know, with some ladies, obviously? 
Because there's many beautiful aspects, but is that just the point? You know, is, and if the point is simply to grow into a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding of who God is and to come a, a sense of worship, surely God, I mean, why didn't God just take us to heaven when we got saved? Because heaven is the perfection of that. Place of complete purity. You know, separation from the world. And a place of worship where you consistently pursue the presence of God. Is that all there is? And then there's some other questions here. Why then does Paul instruct certain churches to worship in a certain way? And he actually says this. He says about the gift of speaking in tongues, which is where a different prayer language. He says, hey, if there's some unbelievers in your midst, don't do that because it will be weird for them. Like that's an amazing thing. In other words, speaking in tongues is a heavenly language. So God gives us an expression of heaven in our own prayer language. But Paul says, don't express heaven too much if there's unbelievers around because then you'll weird them out. It's amazing. Because if the whole point of church is simply to be more like heaven, surely that would be a part of the package deal. But he says, don't do that. And here's the other thing. He says, why do the closest friends of Jesus consistently leave those sorts of communities where this growing church are growing into maturity and they consistently leave it by themselves or with a few mates. They sit on ships. They get sent to prison. They're in pagan temples and Jewish synagogues just to get a few new immature churches going rather than staying in this amazing place. I mean, Paul and Barnabas, he was Saul at that stage, they left a place called Antioch where there was a whole troop of prophets. There's this whole group of recognized prophets in this church. They were a mature church. They'd been growing. They'd been established. And then God says, hey, you know your most mature people? You need to send them somewhere else now. It's like, but hang on. I thought the point was to stay here and to make this better and better and better for the people that were here because then people will come and experience that. He says, no, well, that's not the point. Send them out so they can go start some new immature churches that are actually going to cause a lot of trouble. I mean, Corinth is an example where the one guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And as a pastor, let me tell you, that's a counseling nightmare. Like, you're not excited for Monday morning when that's happening in your church. Because there's some people in the church who are saying, hey, you should take care of that. Hey? And it's amazing because you can imagine, like, and then Paul goes to Ephesus and he starts this church and it's amazing, it's starting to grow and it's just starting to get established and they've got leadership structures and all that stuff. And Paul's quite a handy guy to have around because he's got this incredible gift of teaching. He's got amazing depth of understanding of the Bible, which was just the Old Testament at that time. He was writing the, the New Testament. Like that's pretty handy to have that guy in your church. And then they say, okay, and I'm going to leave. I'm going to go start another immature church, which is going to cause me more gray hair and go through all of that hassle all over again. And these guys kept on climbing on ships and they were in danger on the highways and in danger on the seas and they were dragged out of cities and they were stoned and left for dead and they were beaten with rods and they were mobbed in riots just so they could get some more immature churches going that would cause them more gray hair. So why does God leave the church on earth to attempt to imitate heaven when he could have just taken us to heaven. 
And why tell us to be careful not to imitate heaven too freely when visitors are around in case they get weirded out? And why does the early biblical church keep diluting itself by sending out their biggest gifts and their most mature Christians to go and start some more churches that are going to cause them some gray hair? You see, the question of what is the church for is pretty closely linked to the question of who is the church for? And you see, if you've been around church for a while and you don't have a pretty solid answer to this question, at some point you're going to come into the space of disillusionment because once you've heard a thousand sermons, I've been in church now since I've been born again for over 20 years, so I re- reckon I've heard over a thousand sermons and sung 4,000 worship songs and met how many thousands of people, new people at the door and started, I don't know how many more life groups and taking people through that process. And, and at some point, you need to answer this question for yourself. What is the church really for? And maybe you're in the early days where you're like, yo, I'm so blessed and this is an amazing pace. But I've met so many Christians who are mature believers who've never really answered this question. And now years down the track, they're starting to go, well, why do I still need this? Because it's, it's quite tough sometimes. Surely it would just be better to, to meet in my home with my friends because we're kind of on the same page and we can all bought into this type of teaching or the prophetic teaching, whatever it is, and have my style of worship. Surely we can just spend the rest of our lives getting into deeper and deeper relationship with each other because that's really affirming rather than consistently opening our hearts for new people to come in and then having to deal with all the new issues. Like, it would be nice if we could have a vetting process for church. You apply to be a part of it. Like, yo, I don't know about you. Let's put you on a trial basis. Let's see how this thing goes, you know? There might be a better church for you or a pastor who's got more patience than me. You can deal with that, you know? And the amazing thing is that along the way, people in the church, you know, like, Big church people look at small church people and go, what are you doing? And small church people look at big church people going, what are you doing? And the kind of church that's all about times of intimacy and connection and relationship, they're looking at the YouTube pastors, you know, the pastors who with the hair like, Shh. and they're very fancy, the guys who are on social media, and they're looking at them going, what are you doing? And, and Christians tend to point at each other and going, what are you doing? Because our version of church is best. Can't I just hang out with my five closest buddies? And we can just pass to each other because it's easier. Because here's the thing is that we've all got to get on the same page. And Jesus gets to define what that page is because he's the head of the church and it's his church. And you get to be a part of his church. It's not your church. It's his church. So he gets to define that and you get to leave all your stuff at the door when you step in and get to be a part of his church. So what is this church about Let's talk about that. Start with this one. (laughs) So here's God's heart. Matthew chapter 18. And verse 12 to 14. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice more, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. 
In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. It's an amazing, like I've never been a shepherd, but imagine having a hundred sheep and then all of a sudden you realize one's missing. Where's Eduardo? That crazy sheep. And so you leave the 99 on the hill to fend for themselves. And you go, look for the one. Because the one really matters. And I can imagine sometimes, because now that you're part of the church, you're part of the 99, like you're standing there and it's like, hey, Jesus, there's more of us over here. And he's like, yeah, but I'm going for the one. Because you guys have each other. And I really want to show you God's heart for this and his track record for it throughout Scripture because sometimes we, we can read past some of this stuff and not understand it. But here's a little bit of God's heart for this stuff. So here's the context. We're going to read a, a passage from after the flood with Noah. But what happened is the, the world had become so full of sin that it, God looked at it and it said that he was sorrowful that he had made mankind because they sinned continually, but, God, but Noah found favor in God's sight. And then the, he sends the flood, but he saves Noah and his three sons and their wives. So we're all related to Noah. And this is what God says, and then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants, us, and with all the animals that were on the boat, with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I'm confirming my covenant. My covenant is a solemn promise with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. In other words, God says, never again am I just going to wipe out sinners. Which if you think about it, he, he took a rather big option off the table. Because otherwise we could have prayer meetings. You know, hey, God, please, some floodwaters right about now would be helpful. Because have you seen the corruption, Lord? Have you seen the hearts of people? Have you seen what's happening in our world? And God said, yeah, but I promised never again will I do that. Well, what's the options then? To go after them. And then a little bit later in Genesis chapter 18, God chooses a man called Abraham, and he says this, For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, that's the nation of Israel, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. It's amazing thing is that God chooses Abraham, and he makes him into a nation called Israel, then God chooses Israel, and through that vehicle, salvation comes to the world. But here's a fascinating thing that you might not know, is that God situated Israel in the middle, in the center of the ancient world. So let me explain. We've got a map over here. So obviously, we all know our geography brilliantly, because we're not Americans. Um, but over here is uh, the bottom of Israel, and, and that's the border. And then it just goes up that green crescent. Over here, of course, is Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula. Over here is Arabia, uh, Iran, Babylon, up there at the top of the green thing. And so the way this worked in the ancient world is when anyone traveled they, across the ancient world, they had to go through Israel. Because the only way to get from here round to there is through this green place because it's the only place that will support life. 
And God puts his people in the middle of the ancient world so that anyone who was traveling would go through a nation called Israel and find out about the God of Israel who brought his people out of Israel, uh, Egypt and into Israel and established them in their own land. And they were meant to be a testimony of the goodness of God. So this is quite cool because if you God, you can, des- you can design land masses to suit your purposes. Like that's quite a handy trick to have. And he, it's an amazing thing that all the people here had to move through there. Into Asia, into Europe, and into Egypt over here, which was the superpower at different times in their day. The ancient rabbis actually depicted it like this. There's Israel, there's Asia, there's Europe, and there's Africa, and God situated them at the center of the ancient world so that every time someone was traveling, whether it was a a caravan of traders or an army that wanted to control the world, they had to go through these people that were marked by God and find out about who he was. And this is what God says in Ezekiel chapter 37. And I'll make my home among them, that's Israel. I will be their God and they will be my people. And when my temple is among them forever, the nations will know that I am the Lord who makes Israel holy. That was his heart for placing them in this space. And then in Luke 4, chapter 42 to 44, uh, basically what's happening is there's this pull towards Jerusalem in the ancient world. They had to go there. It's pulled towards Israel. But when Jesus comes, there starts to be something else. He starts to go after the outskirts. So this is from the times of Jesus, Luke chapter 4, 42 to 44. Early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowd searched everywhere for him. And when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. The crowds. The crowds. But he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. So that he continued to travel around preaching in synagogues throughout Judea. See, Jesus had a really bad strategy of building Jesus Ministries International. It's funny, like, because those ministries international, like, you'll go through the smallest dorp in South Africa, and there'll be some something ministries international. You're like, you know, you actually have to be in more than one country to call yourself international. Um, but Jesus had a really bad strategy, because everyone knows the way you become famous is you stick around in one place, and, and you draw crowds to yourself, because then everyone knows where to find you. And Jesus had crowds, sometimes 10, 15,000 people all coming to hear him. And as they're coming, and the new crowd's coming, Jesus says, I'm going to leave the crowds now to go after the guys who aren't here. Why? Because there are some people out there who are too locked in their shame or too locked in their sin or too locked in their pride or their situation to leave that and actually come to Jesus. Because only people are coming to Jesus were people who were already hungry and already kind of on the way to believing. And Jesus said, there's some people here who will never come to me, so I will go to them. And that's why we keep on hearing Jesus encountering the one woman at the one well. Or the one man up one tree, or one woman who came and grabbed the hem of his garment. And this is actually how Jesus described his ministry. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. That was the home of Zacchaeus. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Where? Everywhere. Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, all the way at the bottom of Africa, 
in a place called the North Coast. (laughs) Aren't you glad that we have a God that goes after the one? Because I was that one. I was that one who didn't want to go to church, didn't want to give my life to God, did my best to avoid him, and he came after me. And now I'm a part of the 99. Steve, you were one of the ones that didn't want God in your life. They thought you had a better idea how to live this thing without him than with him. And Jesus left the 99 and he came after you. And that's in Shaul. You were like a half. <laughs> and you see a life where God is doing something and you see you know, all the stuff that God's done and you see that person, but you don't see when they were just one of the ones. Lost in some pain and some poor decision making. Angry at God. Disillusioned. Because that's the thing. You forget that you were out there. You forget. Because now you've been a part of this 99 for so long. That that life is like, well, my life. No, you were one of the ones. And Jesus came for you. And he loved you. And he died for your sins. And there was someone praying for you. And there was someone inviting you. And when you came here, someone made you a cup of coffee. That maybe you'll stick around for an extra five minutes. So someone could come and speak to you. Because you desperately needed Jesus. Darren, you were one of the ones. We hear a story now, which is a story of triumph and faith. But let me tell you, there was a moment of faith when he said, Jesus Christ, I give you my life. And in that moment, God came into his life and rescued him from a lost eternity. Because that is who God is. We desperately need Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I did my best job to avoid him. I was Eduardo the sheep, (laughs) trying to escape the shepherd. And he came for me. And so my question to you today is, who's your one that you're praying for, that you're inviting that you're lifting up to the throne room of heaven. You know, I, I remembered last week I was preaching on prayer and fasting that my mom and my youth leader had committed to a season of prayer and fasting for me until I came home. And in that season, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Who are you praying for? Who are you petitioning heaven for and saying, God, please help them come and be a part of this because I want them to know the goodness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you choose to leave the 99 again and again and again and you go after the one and that's why we're sitting here today.
And I pray, Father God, that we'd be a church that keeps on opening our hearts